How's everybody feeling? All right, welcome to church today. All right, today I'm continuing my sermon series on women in ministry. And a few weeks ago, I preached my first message. It was called, uh, Women Are Not Inferior, Trying to Break Apart All of the False Traditional and Cultural Beliefs. Uh, beliefs that we have derived not from the Word of God, but from tradition and culture regarding women. A lot of times, uh, the underlying belief is that women are inferior. Uh, and that's the reason why they are oppressed the way they are. And I break, broke apart that, uh, that cultural belief. All right? Make sure you all get that. Get that memo. All right? Because this is a systematic theology I'm presenting to you. All right, and so you got to build on each message. If you just came here today and my message is a little bit over the top, all right, may I submit to you, be patient, go back to the first and uh, second message, and, and then come to your conclusions. All right, I give you the freedom, I bless you. I'm not here to be dogmatic, I'm not here to shove my opinions down your throat. What I'm trying to do is invite you into a study. Uh, of the Word of God, invite you into a thinking person's landing of your beliefs. We don't want robots in here. Amen? Amen. We want thinking adults. We want people that know how to search the Scriptures to see if everything that is being preached from this pulpit is true. Those are the types of Christians that are going to be able to endure anything. Endure tribulation, whatever. Whatever the devil throws your ways, uh, if you go on a church plant and things get difficult, when you have searched the scriptures and you've landed at your conclusions, you're not going to move from that place no matter what the devil says, no matter what man says. And so I'm inviting you into that through each of these messages. Uh, the second message I preached last week was a biblical exegesis of women in ministry. And I presented to you the hot text that are used to argue for or against women's roles in ministry. I went over those hot texts. And I presented to you a very clear biblical exegesis of why I believe what I do. Regarding roles, uh, the role of women in ministry. Alright? And so, that was last week. If you didn't get that, you got to get it. Okay? Because I'm not preaching something here out of my opinions or out of what I see in the culture, what I see people, what the, what I see the Western culture moving towards. It's not where I'm landing on. It's not what I'm using to, to come to my conclusions. I'm struggling and wrestling with the Word of God. Alright? And I, I submitted a very important concept of biblical interpretation called cultural relativity. And I told you that many of you already do cultural relativity without even knowing the concept explicitly. For example, the holy kiss. Okay? For all of my years here at New Philly, I have never had a brother give me a holy kiss. Even though five times in the Bible it says verbatim, greet each other with a holy kiss. Okay? We are leaving that in the first century. Why? Okay? Because of the concept of cultural relativity. All right, And for something as big as women's roles in ministry, you would think that we shouldn't apply that to something like that. 
like women's role in ministry, something that big. But we looked at the scriptures last week, and I presented to you the view that I have landed on, which is I believe it was culturally relative, these texts about women in ministry, because the culture at that time, women were uneducated. The Apostle Paul, the plain reading of 1 Timothy 2, verse 14 and 15, it looks like Paul is saying women are easily deceived. And I told you, I agree with that. Why? Because women were easily deceived back then. Because they didn't have an education. You know, the most creative doctrines, they probably just went along with it. Because they, they, could, they couldn't process it for themselves. So the Apostle Paul puts a restriction on teaching, on leadership, even in speaking. Something that sounds so extreme. He says women should be quiet in 1 Timothy 2. In 1 Corinthians 14, he says women should be silent. And some people argue over those words. I think it means silent, and I think it means quiet. I think it pretty much means the same thing. Telling the women to shut up. Because you, you're, you're coming up with all kinds of false teachings and spreading it in the house. So I believe the plain reading of that text, Paul is saying, women are easy to deceive. So therefore, check this out. I'm putting this restriction. Women can't teach over men. Women can't lead over men. And women shouldn't even speak or they should just be quiet in the church. In 1 Corinthians, it says, let them go home and ask their husbands. To the widows, he says, Y'all should get married and have a husband so you can ask when you get home. You know, because it was the younger widows, the Bible says, that were being easily deceived in Ephesus. First Timothy uh, is dealing with uh, Timothy, who is the leader and pastor of the church in Ephesus. Okay? And so he's addressing the false teachers and the false teachings that were spreading among the young widows. All right. So today I'm going to continue this series. All right. But before I continue and the main... Main message is going to come a little bit later. I got to take a pause here because I have to honor. I have to honor some of my brothers and sisters, some of my men and women, some of my leaders of God in the reformed movement. Because you guys know I'm very reformed. Okay, right now I'm studying church history, studying about the Reformation. I'm studying about um, uh, the Anabaptist movement, which uh, Pastor John's ancestors were a part of, and they were massively killed by both Catholics and Protestants. Uh, I'm studying about, um, uh, you know, uh, I just studied about St. Bar- Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Crazy. There are all these French Calvinists. They're all over France. They got slaughtered in one week. People dragged them out of houses and just stabbed all the Catholics killed. I mean, Catholics have shed a lot of blood. I was shocked. Protestants also have shed some blood. Not as much as Catholics, but they've also, uh, at one point, they were uh, killing off uh, Arminians, people that didn't believe in Calvinism, people that were championing this thing called Arminianism. And we looked at that. They didn't kill that many. They just killed like a couple people. (laughs) But still, you know. And then, you know, the Scottish men, the Scottish were strong uh, Presbyterians, they're the ones who really pushed for the Presbyterian form of government. And what I found out was the Scottish men, when they didn't have their way, they picked up their swords and they went and got their way. All right. And so, you know what some William Wallace did in the movie Braveheart? They kept repeating that throughout their history. They would invade England whenever they didn't. They were they were being oppressed or uh, one time one of the uh, the 
I think it was James the first or second. One of the kings uh, tried to instill like a like an Anglican liturgy and and onto the Scottish. The Scottish rebelled right away and they invaded England and defeated the English army on their turf. And that William Wallace tradition, I think, you know, he's not just a legend, man. Those Scottish people, they really they have that brave heart spirit. Uh, I don't know if they still do, but but anyway, there's a lot of um, a lot of history. Why am I getting into that? I'm sorry. <clears throat> uh, I want to honor the reform guys. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to honor the reform guys uh, by looking at the website called the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. How many of you guys know about this? The Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Okay, thank you. John Newfell knows. Okay, the rest of y'all should be aware of such a council because it is very important. Okay, the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood was formed in 1987, and they drafted a statement called the Danvers Statement. And it was a reaction to the egalitarian view presented by the Evangelical Colloquium on Women and the Bible that was held back in 1984. So it was a response and reaction to that. Okay? And if you go on their website, when you read under why it exists, this is the reason why the council exists. It says, in opposition to the growing movement of feminist egalitarianism, uh, CBMW articulated what is known as the complementarian position, which affirms that men and women are equal in the image of God, but maintain complementary differences in role and function. In the home, men lovingly are to lead their wives and family, as women intelligently are to submit to the leadership of their husbands. But in the church, while men and women are shared equally in the blessings of salvation, some governing and teaching roles are restricted to men. An organization like CBMW is needed because the gender issue is so complex and the consequences for violating God's word in this area are so devastating. Okay, This is, this is very important what they did. Okay, Because the thrust of what's people that are arguing for egalitarianism... Right, their core values are not necessarily true to Scripture. They don't have necessarily a high view of Scripture. All right? And so these leaders, it's most of them from the Reform Movement, they're very smart people. And what you will notice in church history is the smartest people have always, uh, Pastor Benjamin might disagree with this, but the smartest people have always been Reformed. They've been Calvinists. They've been Augustinian. In fact, I studied Catholic Orthodoxy, Right after the Reformation happened with Martin Luther posting his 95 Theses, uh, the Catholic Church met for the Council of Trent, and they came up with all these statements of faith. Okay? When they did that statement of faith, a lot of Catholic leaders that stayed true to the Catholic Church, they were concerned that they were overreacting to some of the Reformers', teacher, re- reformers teachings, and they thought they had overcompensated and, and abandoned some of Augustine's views. And Augustine in the Catholic Church... It's esteemed and seen as one of the forefathers, right? And so what happened was a lot of Catholic leaders started to study Augustinian theology. And what they found and they articulated was later on accused of being too Calvinistic. Okay, so you got to understand, you can't run away from the Calvinistic Augustinian, some people will call it the Pauline view of predestination. It has been one of the foundational elements, one of the pillars of keeping the church from slipping into liberalism. Because it is a very very faithful exposition of the text. 
I'm fully convinced of that. I could be wrong, but for right now, I'm fully convinced of that. And studying church history, it just continues to solidify. Oh, man, I've landed at the right page. Okay. Now, I don't think we should be dogmatic about it. But anyway, I, I think, I think, anyway, I think we need to uh, honor the reform guys. And so these reform guys are reacting to these egalitarians and feminists uh, that are arguing for women, but they're doing it without the Bible or they're doing it by interpreting the Bible in a very loose way. Okay. So the CBMW is formed. Their mission uh, is to set forth the teachings of the Bible about the complementary differences between men and women created equally in the image of God because these teachings are essential for obedience to scripture and for the health and family, for the health of the family and the church. The vision of the council is to see the vast majority of evangelical homes, churches, institutions, and other ministries adopt the principles of the Danvers Statement as a part of their personal convictions and doctrinal confessions and apply them in consistent heartfelt practice. Okay? This is the mission and vision of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Now, this council, in all of their concerns, they have uh, organizations, denominations, and churches are either entirely affirmed. So, for example, the ones that are affirmed are like the Southern Baptist Convention, the Presbyterian Church America, PCA, uh, Bethlehem Baptist Church, John Piper's Church in Minnesota. Okay? Or they're entirely rejected based on this point, based on some of these uh, views. Uh, and those are Inner Varsity, Fuller Theological Seminary, because uh, they're pretty liberal over there. I'm sorry, right? Right, Pio? Pio's over there, man. He knows. They get mad liberal over there. They're like, they're saying, you know, you know, there's other ways to, to God besides Jesus. All right, man, that just needs to go. All right, that's mad liberal. But, man, you got to make the most of it while you're there, right? Okay. Uh, <laughs> Inner varsities reject the fuller. PCUSA, because PCUSA is such a bigger denomination. There's a lot of liberal uh, arms of PCUSA, so they reject PCUSA. United Methodist Church, because United Methodists are pretty liberal. All right, I'm sorry to say that. But they are. You should study your own history, all right? You should study your denomination history. They're pretty liberal. Willow Creek, uh, a picture of a popular church, they're rejected as well, okay? So and they, they make these very clear, like, who's in, who's not, okay? Uh, and here are some of the quotes from the front page of the website. I have a lot of quotes. I want to read all of them, but I'm just going to read a few, all right, because it's going to take too long, okay? This is uh, Albert Moeller. The arguments used in support of the ordination of women require the dismissal or reinterpretation of specific biblical texts which disallow women in the teaching office. The same is true of arguments for the ordination of homosexuals. I am not accusing all proponents of women's ordination of supporting the ordination of homosexuals, but I am insisting that the basic hermeneutical approach behind these arguments has a common core, a relativizing of prohibited biblical texts in the name of liberation, whether of women or of homosexuals. Okay, obviously this guy's a very smart guy, all right? But now I, w- I obviously wouldn't agree with his statement that we are dismissing Scripture or that we are reinterpreting Scripture in a way that does violence to the text. I don't think that's what we've done the past week. If that's what you think, all right, you're in good company because he's a very smart man, all right? Uh, let me read you another one. John Piper, the meaning of marriage is bigger than anyone had dreamed. It is Christ and the church. If the roles of husband and wife do not portray the different ways that Christ and the church serve each other, then marriage ceases to be a model of Christ and the church. 
Oh, that's pretty good. Hey, are we still recording? We good? All right. I'm going to pause right here. I'm going to make a rebuttal of this. Okay, I agree that the roles of husband and wife portray a picture of Christ in the church. It's very clear in the Bible. But I disagree with Piper in the sense that I do not think the role of husband and wife portray the way that Christ desires men in the church to relate to the women. Do you understand what I just said? The role of husband and wife, I don't think has parallels to the roles of men treating the women in the church a particular way. Alright, so it applies, for me, it applies simply to the home. In the family, the man needs to lead. Okay? But in the family of God, the headship husband role, I believe, is reserved for Christ. That's why he is called the husband, the groom, and we are the bride, regardless of gender. I sound smart, don't I, right now? (laughs) I've thought this through very carefully. Okay? So this role is reserved for Christ, not for the male leaders in the church. I highly honor Piper, but I disagree. For the church, I believe that Christ distributes ministry roles without regard for gender. And I'll prove that later through my exposition of Ephesians chapter 4. Let me read you another one. Uh, I need to skip that one. Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem, very powerful man. He says, so in the end, the whole controversy is really about God. And how his character is reflected in the beauty and excellence of manhood and woman as he created it. Will we glorify God through manhood and woman lived according to his word? What he really means is according to my interpretation of the word. But, you know, he didn't put that in there. Okay. Will we glorify God through manhood and womanhood lived according to his word? Or will we deny his word and give in to the pressures of modern culture? That is the choice that we have to make. Good quote, Wayne Grudem. But once again, it's not, we're not denying scripture by arguing for what we're arguing for. We're just simply disagreeing with your interpretation of scripture. But in no way do we feel like we're departing from scripture or denying scripture by arguing for what we argue for. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? These quotes are loaded. All right? And if you're being convinced of the utter complementarian view right now, good, because I'm, wa- I'm wanting to do that right now. I'm dropping big names. I'm reading quotes that are loaded on purpose to shock you from what you got last week to see if you really believe what you believe from last week. I presented to you, some of you, you just still, you know, I'm trying to figure it out. <laughs> for, for you melancholies, for you thinkers in here, you already got it. But I'm trying, to, I'm trying to shake you from that to see if you really believe it. Now, I believe this um, powerful quote called, and uh, there's a quote that says, "Truth." John Piper quotes it a lot. He, Truth has no fear of examination. Amen? Truth has no fear of examination. So last week when I got home, immediately I started reading more and more on the complementarian view. Because if what I am holding to, I believe is truth, that it needs to be tested. It needs to be challenged. And that's why I attacked this website. And I got on there and I read it through to see if I am in agreement. Okay? And so that's why I'm presenting it to you. I'm kind of taking you along on my journey of experience. Okay? Um, 
This Danvers statement on biblical manhood and womanhood, it can be found on their website. It's an overview of their core beliefs, kind of like our core values. There are 10 affirmations that are made. I agree with all of them except one detail in number five, the words covenant community, and the second uh, point of number six. Okay, so you go to number five and number six of the affirmations of the Danvers statement. I do not agree with number five, one little point, and number six uh, about governing and teaching roles being restricted to men. Okay, everything else I am in full agreement in their with their concerns. I am in one hundred percent agreement with their concerns. I think they have a legitimate concern as they face the liberal attacks and the liberal slip-ups of good-meaning evangelicals that start to really depart from Scripture or depart from a good interpretation of Scripture. And I am thankful and I honor them for their clear articulation, but I am not in full agreement with every point of the Danvers statement. There are highly esteemed leaders who support this council. C.J. Mahaney, Joshua Harris, John Piper, uh Ligon, Ligonier, Ligon, Ligon Duncan. I don't know how to say his name, but I, I recognize his name. Uh, very highly respected man, Rain Grudem. But I simply do not agree with this one point of women being restricted from certain governing and teaching roles. That is the one point I disagree with. Everything else, I'm in wholehearted agreement. One of their deep concerns that they list uh, on the Denver statement, it says... The, uh, one deep concern, the increasing prevalence and acceptance of hermeneutical oddities, that's interpretation techniques, devised to reinterpret apparently plain meaning of biblical texts. In a few moments, I'm going to present to you the complementarian interpretation of 1 Timothy 2. And I'm going to show you that my interpretation from last week is a much more closer plain meaning than the one that this complementarian guy comes up with. And I, I'll, I'll make it as clear as day. I don't know if I will today, but I'll lead you to it. I'll point you to it because I can't ex- you know, go over it completely. But, you know, I believe that what I presented last week reflects a plain meaning, the plain reading of that text. But anyway, one of their concerns is we're departing from the plain reading of the text. What did I say last week? I, most of the time, I favor the plain meaning. The plain reading of the text. Okay? And I believe what I interpreted was much more plain than what they do. Very, very creative what they do. And I'll present to you what they do. Okay? Because last week I gave them, I gave a caricature and this is my confession. I know smart people don't do this. I gave the caricature, I gave the picture that they pick and choose what to apply. That's wrong. That was wrong with me. Okay? That was a little dogmatic. That was wrong. Let me say that again. I was wrong. <laughs> These smart reform guys, that's not what they do. They don't pick and choose. Okay? They came up with a certain interpretation and they spun it. And I'm going to show you what it is. So it shows that they're not picking and choosing. They're just reinterpreting text. Okay? Uh, so, Pastor Christian, what are you? you? Alright, what are you? Okay? Well, I'm not a feminist because a feminist tends to have a low view of scripture. They are fueled by anger and animosity toward men. <laughs> and they believe not only that women should be afforded all ministry positions, but they also believe that women and men's roles in the family are the same. 
Don't agree with that. I'm not a feminist. I'm not egalitarian because a lot of egalitarians are often seen as supporting ordination of homosexuals. Sorry, I'm not egalitarian. I don't want to be listed. I don't want to ever be labeled. Don't ever call me. Oh, don't be like Pastor Christian. I love your egalitarian view. Don't ever put that on my Facebook page. I will delete it with the quickness and kick you the next week. Not egalitarian. All right, that term is too loaded. It's too contaminated. Can't align myself with that. Okay. I'm not a complementarian because although I agree with all their concerns and most of their core beliefs, I disagree on one major point, the restriction of women's roles uh, of teaching and leadership in ministry. Okay. So what am I? Uh, let me just say here, my view and my beliefs are most closely aligned to the complementarians. All right? I am complementarian in the family and in regards to all their concerns and regards to all their championing of the high view of Scripture. But I am egalitarian in the ministry. I'm not picking and choosing. I just believe a faithful exposition brings my conscience to that conclusion. Thus, a separate view, I believe, today needs to be articulated. So the next book written should be called Three Views of Women in Ministry. Hallelujah. Or called The Right View of Women in Ministry. I'm playing, that's arrogant. So I don't know what to call it, all right? I don't know what to call it. For now, I call it egalitarian. So don't get me wrong. In the family, David King, who got married yesterday, you are the head of the household. You represent Christ to your bride. As Christ loves the church, the Bible says, husbands love your wives. With that sacrificial, unconditional, agape love of Christ. Husbands are to love their wives. And wives are called to submit to their husbands in everything. I believe, I like the word intelligent. They said intelligently submit in, on their website. I like that. Because if the, if the husband is like, I'm a Christian, I'm filled with the Spirit, and is beating you at the same time, and telling you to submit to this, all right? Intelligent submission would say, oh, I'm peace out, all right? I don't need to take this no more. Okay, and you shouldn't. If you're, if you're being physically abused, you're in an unsafe place, alright, it's time to really get into some warfare and pray it up, but you need to get to a safe place first. So I think we need some intelligent submission, but regardless, women, the wives are called to submit. Why? Because the church is called to submit to Christ. Alright, those parallels are real clear to me. But in regards to women's roles in ministry, teaching and leadership, all right. I just simply don't see in the Bible this universal application of restriction. I do not see it in the scriptures. And I, don't, I do not believe that women that are serving in leadership roles and teaching men, I don't believe that they are violating the scripture. Neither do I think that they are departing from a high view of scripture. They just have a different view of scripture. 
So what I would like to ask the Council of Biblical Manhood and Woman to stop doing is painting caricatures of people who support women's roles in ministry. Because they keep painting that we want to ordain homosexuals, and that's not true. They keep painting that we're departing from Scripture, and that's not true. So I'm sorry for my caricature that I painted last week. But y'all need to stop doing that. You need to be more gracious to the body of Christ. Maybe y'all are wrong. Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Maybe all CJ Mahaney and John Pipe. Maybe y'all are wrong. You can have all the PhDs in the world. It don't impress me much. You need to show me. All right. Anyway, yeah, so I'm egaliplementarian. <laughs> now, we'll come up. I'm sure there will be a new term. It won't be a new term. I believe it's just, it's just a very clear revelation of what's already been there through church history, I believe. All right. All right. Um, let me break down uh, Craig Blomberg's argument for complementarianism. Uh, he uses the text 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16. Why don't you turn there? 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16. So you read here, I didn't read this text last week because I didn't argue that this is one of the main texts. But for complementarians, it is. So we need to visit this text. All right? So let me read 2 to 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. Notice he didn't say image and glory of man. He just said glory of man. Uh, for man was not made for woman, but woman for man. That's right. Y'all came from us. <laughs> Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's right. You're supposed to be our helper. Right? That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority in her head because of the angels. Nobody really knows what because of the angels means. I actually take the Genesis 6 view, but that's a whole other story. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man. Okay, oh, oh, he's flipping the script here. He's flipping the script. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. Y'all came from us now. Because women, obviously, y'all gave birth to each and every one of us. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. What are you talking about, Paul? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such, notice the word, practice, nor do the churches of God. Notice the word practice. All right. Uh, so Blomberg, arguing for a complementarian view, believes that this passage teaches timeless principles of male headship and female subordination. 
at least among husbands and wives. Yeah, that's all he argues for, but I don't know how he takes that and applies it to the church, but he does. Not sure. I read the whole chapter and it was a little annoying because I didn't like his writing style. Wasn't very convincing. Wasn't well articulated. In fact, I was reading my New Testament studies textbook this past week. And as I was reading the chapter, I was very annoyed. The same uh, uh, annoyance that I felt when I read this chapter. All right. Well, the funny thing is, I check out the authors of both, cha- both chapters and guess what? It's the same author. Craig Blomberg. All right. Sorry, Blomberg, but I'm just not a big fan. Okay, but nevertheless, let's consider, right? Uh, he, he thinks that this passage also proves the role of women in spirit-filled preaching. This is why he backs up women's role in preaching and teaching. Because he equates prophesying with teaching and preaching. All right? And that's why a lot of um, people who don't really exercise the gift of prophecy, they usually argue that. I'm sorry, i got to put it out there, though. All right, people that don't really know what prophecy is or they never experienced real Gift of prophecy, prophecy. There you usually argue, well, prophecy is essentially, you know, uh, taking an oracle of God, taking a revelation and word of God and delivering it. And so I guess in preaching, that's what essentially we do as well. So preaching is a form of prophesying. All right. And that's what they argue. But anyone who's actually experienced real prophecy, you would not necessarily put it together like that. I mean, you could, but it's easier to think of it as two different things. Preaching and prophesying. Now, don't get me wrong. When I preach, sometimes I prophesy. Okay? But I think it's still better to have a clear distinction. But anyway, he'll argue for... Uh, he says here, women should be able to pray and prophesy. So he starts to argue, well, women should be allowed to teach and preach. Okay? Anyway, that's kind of like... You see how what he's doing? Anyway, I, 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 I just thought... Um, now, the problem with this text is, the word for woman... In the Greek, can be translated as wife, depending on the context. So here in the ESV, it actually favors the word woman. Check this out. Notice everywhere woman and wife appears. Okay, Those words are only defined in the English as woman or wife, depending on the context. So some passages, some translations, will use wife throughout it all. Others will use woman. So it will deliver it like this. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. Other translations will say the head of a man, or head of a woman, is the man. Do you guys hear what I'm saying? So I mean, you have that problem with that word, okay? And so to clearly argue that this is teaching a universal headship that applies not only to the family but also to the ministry, which I don't believe is saying here at all. You gotta, you gotta stretch your, uh, speculative interpretation imagination. Um, I think here, when you start getting into the nitty gritty of this text, it's talking about hair, long hair, short hair, shaven hair, shame with hair. Now, I think women can relate, cause if y'all shave your head off, in the Korean culture, American culture, most cultures would think, something up with that girl. <laughs> Look at her, man, she shaved her head. What, she got leukemia or something? Like, what, what, what happened? You know, they're thinking either she's got cancer or she's got some issues. 
Right? So you understand the shame aspect. But what's, we don't, the men that are like, what are you talking about? Whether we have our head cover or uncovered, what's the big deal? Right? Because why? Because that cultural value is no longer significant to us. You know what I mean? So the nitty gritty of this text is really talking about the, what uh, Gordon Fee was saying. It's pretty much saying, let us not distract people during worship. Because back in that culture, if a woman had not had her head covered, that could be seen as like a flirtatious kind of behavior, a distracting kind of behavior, check me out kind of behavior. So Paul, in order to minimize that, clearly takes the cultural value of head coverings and tells women, don't be praying and prophesying up in here. Guys might get sexually tempted if you get up there without a head covering. So make sure you don't distract from the glory of God in worship. Do it with a head covering. You know? But for the men, don't you dare cover your head. Right? Don't wear no hat. Don't wear no veil. And then, I mean, it talks about short hair and long hair. What the heck? What is that about? Today, in today's culture, short hair, no, it don't matter to us men. Right? Back then, it may have mattered because maybe they didn't have good barbers. I don't know. But to us today, men, men are like, what's the big deal, right? I mean, it's so clear. There's like a cultural relativity element to this text. And we need to understand what Paul is really getting at. Don't distract. We've got to learn how to apply that principle today. You know how I would apply that principle today? Don't distract from worship. It will be um, men. Don't, uh, don't wear a mullet because mullets are outdated. And people are going to think you came from the 80s. You know, I don't know. Like there's other things that I could say in terms of application to get at the same principle. And I believe those applications that Paul makes here are best left in the scriptures. He uses an absolute principle to back up a relative application. But we already looked at that uh, the New Testament writers can do that without making the application absolute. Do You guys remember that? That's a powerful paradigm. Y'all need to learn. You're already using it. Y'all need, y'all need to understand that that's, that, that, that exists. Uh, Blomberg's, uh, argument on 1st Timothy 2. Alright. Blomberg, Blomberg argument on 1st Timothy 2. If you want to turn there. Uh, he is not picking and choosing what to apply. I'm sorry. Okay, at least for his view of complementarianism, he doesn't do that. Okay? Instead, he uses, stay with me here, stay with me everybody. <laughs> he uses a grammatical study in the Greek to argue that Paul did not forbid two separate actions. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. Now what do we see there? We see two separate actions. Okay? What does Blomberg, uh, Argue for. He says rather that the two verbs here, they signify a one function, one role. He argues that Paul tends to use pairs of synonymous words to emphasize important things. For example, in the same chapter, he uses petitions, prayer, intercession. Uh, verse 2, he says, kings and all those in authority. Uh, verse, uh, later in 2, peaceful and quiet lives. Uh, verse 3, good and acceptable. This is, uh, I think, the NIV. I'm not sure if this is, uh, this is not the ESV. 
verse 7, I am telling the truth, I am not lying. Okay, sounds very redundant, right? Well, he's saying that even in the same chapter, Paul does that again and again and again. Uses synonymous words to say the same thing. So he thinks it is not surprising that Paul may be doing the same thing in verse 12. Paul is not prohibiting teaching and exercising authority. Instead, he is prohibiting one thing. Women's role in authoritative teaching positions. Do you guys just catch that? If you got a college degree, say amen. amen. All right, why aren't you all catching this? Okay. Uh, do, you, do, you need, do you just need me to sum it up? Uh, what he is arguing for is that Paul is not saying, he's not prohibiting women from teaching and women from leadership authority. That's not what he's prohibiting. Blomberg is saying Paul is prohibiting one thing. He's using synonymous words to get at and point at one function, one role. The text doesn't say that, but he likes to say that. By the way, text doesn't say that, but he likes to say that. One function, one role. And he defines that function and role. The text doesn't say it, but he likes to say it as the elder of the church. The elder, which in Presbyterianism is the pastor. The pastor is one of the elders. In some church forms of Presbyterian government, the, the pastor is an elder in the church. All right? And so these elder positions, these top positions of governing leadership, only for men. That's what Paul is arguing. He is restricting women from eldership. And then he backs that up by going to the next chapter, which talks about the qualifications of an elder. And he says, you see this? It's coming up. This is what he really meant, to restrict women from this position of eldership, which involves an ability to teach. You see that in chapter 3. An elder must have an ability to teach. So he's forbidding women. From that position. And therefore he concludes at. The headship. uh, Prohibiting headship in the church. The complementarian view. You guys just catch all that? He's not picking and choosing. He's not allowing women to teach. But prohibiting women from leadership. He's just saying it's one thing. Alright. Oh man. Okay. So here's his paraphrase. This is from the chapter. This is his paraphrase of 1 Timothy 2. If he wrote the Bible, he said, this is how I will paraphrase it to make it more clear on the issues. He says, women are not to hold the authoritative teaching position in the church because that is not a role for which they were created. Moreover, things subsequently deteriorated for the woman after creation when she fell through the deception of the serpent. But there is a bright side. Women collectively will be preserved and restored as they exercise uh, in a godly fashion, their distinctive role of rearing, rearing children, of raising children. But spiritual salvation proceeds only from faith in Christ, as evidenced by a transformed lifestyle of faith, love, and holiness. Wow! If you compare that to the original text, man, there's a lot of stuff he added. But especially the latter verses, man. He just, uh, pff, speculative. <laughs> this is what the Bible meant. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. That is not the plain reading. What? what? There's a bright side. What? Where, where, where? I don't see Paul saying there's a bright side. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman. Oh, man, Paul, you're so harsh. But there's a bright side? No, he doesn't even mention a bright side. 
says, yet she will be saved through childbearing. What the bright side is that? Sound very bright to me. I think the plain reading of the scripture is Paul in that culture, that's how he understood. And that's what he believed to be the role of woman in that culture. Women, y'all need to get off the teaching because y'all is jacking things up here. Just go home, raise the children, please. Go home, raise the children, ask your husbands at home. Don't be speaking up around here. We're trying, I'm, I'm a Timothy is a young leader. I need this boy. All right, I need this boy to be solid. And y'all are jacking things up. You're making it hard on Timothy. So y'all just shut up. Because y'all are easily deceived. Let me show you. In Genesis, it was Eve who was deceived, not the man. And I kind of chuckled in my first message that that's not what it seemed to happen. It looked like the man was deceived too. But, you know, some people have trouble with that because they thought I was um, uh, trying to argue that uh, Paul uh, was completely off on Genesis. I don't think that. Okay? I think it is true. Man wasn't deceived. I argued this last week. Okay? The woman was deceived. Man, we don't really know what his motive was for eating the apple, for eating the fruit. He just went along with it. So maybe his downfall was not deception. It was just, just passivity. It was just, I'm really attracted to Eve and I will do whatever you tell me, girl. You want me to eat fruit? You want me to eat an animal? Tell me, I'll do it. Like he just passively went along with it. So we have no, no indication in the text that the man was deceived. So it's an accurate statement. A plain reading of the text to me makes sense. But if Paul, like I argue, if Paul was alive today, I don't think he would be using Genesis in that way. He'll be like, man, look at these women. Look at New Philly. He would never. No, I I can't say that. I'm being like Blomberg. Let me get off that. Anyway, I think his interpretation of 1 Timothy 2 is very speculative. Combining what looks like two. It's actually three, by the way. It's teaching, authority, and it also says, rather she is to remain quiet. There's three things he's got to deal with there. Right? And he only deals with two, and then he merges it and says it's actually just talking about one. And therefore, we are sticking by that, and we are applying that by forbidding women from eldership. All right. So that's the complementarian view. If you're convinced of the complementarian view, then God bless you. But I'm going to move in right now to the main message right here. All right, y'all are like, what? You didn't preach the main message yet? All right, here it comes. Here it comes. Here it comes. Just catch this. Catch this, because this is good. Now, now, hey, 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 hey. This is not biblical exegesis. This is not biblical exegesis, but it's still good. And it needs to be considered. It should not be abandoned, what I'm about to present. All right. Check this out. Um, in the book of Acts, both men and women were arrested and imprisoned for their faith. What does that tell you about women? That means women were not at home just baking cookies and watching Oprah. All right. Women were on the streets. Women were out there preaching right along with the men so that when the men were arrested, so were the women. Shows you evidence. Women were quite active. We don't know if they're teaching the men. 
But it probably did because they met all kinds of people. Um, and by the way, when you evangelize, you got to do a little teaching. So if you really strictly apply the complementarian view, you really shouldn't be evangelizing to men. Because evangelism involves teaching. And you're forbidden from teaching men. Whether Christian or non-Christian. Anyway, man, that's just... I, I can't... I can't... I don't, I don't think that's what the text says. Um, the Apostle Paul... Go to Romans 16. This is really cool. Go to Romans 16. Now, the Apostle Paul... When he would close his letters, he was like a hip-hop artist. <laughs> if you guys know hip-hop culture... You know that the, at the end of good hip-hop songs back in the 90s, all right, they needed to give shout-outs to everybody and their mama. <laughs> or a shout-out to Bay up in Philly, up in A-Town. Yo, 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 you know what I'm talking about? Snoop Dogg over there in the West Side. You know, they just have to do all these shout-outs, man. It's crazy. In fact, the, uh, the song, Let Me Clear My Throat, I think it's like Guinness Book of World Records for the most shout-outs in a hip-hop song. Man, he does so many shout-outs. And by the way, he did that in Philly, all right? That was in, that was in Philly. The Philly people are like that. I grew up with that. <laughs> Every time they I want to make a song request. Can y'all play this song by, you know, Dr. Dre? And they're like, all right, we'll play that song. Oh, I, by the way, I want to say shout-out to my mama, my uncle. I want to say uh, to, to, to Tanisha and to Janelle and to uh, Rashid. And, to, uh, the, and by the way, these are all like black names I grew up with, all right? <laughs> Anyway, Paul was a lot like a hip-hop artist because at the end of his letters, man, he would do shout-outs like there's no tomorrow. <clears throat> Check this out. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, first shout-out to a woman, servant of the church at uh, San Cray A, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. Verse 3, greet Prisca. What the heck is ESV doing? Priscilla, all right? Most people know that as Priscilla. It says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Priscilla, by the way, is a woman's name. And traditionally, in this culture, they always listed the husband's name first. So it's very odd that he lists the woman's name first. Seems like he's recognizing, perhaps, a leadership ministry position she had. Maybe not in the family, but in terms of ministry, because it's a public thing when he does these shout-outs. Mentions Priscilla first, another woman. Uh, keep going. Uh, greet Mary. Oh, another woman. Greet Adronicus and Junia. Junia, another woman. Um, greet Ampilatus. We don't know. That's just gender neutral. We don't know. <laughs> greet Urbanius. Uh, and my beloved Stachius. Man, I'm getting lost. I don't know what these men are or women are. Uh, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Uh, man, ESV, man, just, man, makes it really difficult to read these names. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Uh, uh, yada, yada, yada. Uh, regardless, okay? Uh, it's kind of hard to distinguish, but there are more female names later. Julia, uh, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Um, He does a lot of shout-outs to women. Which goes to tell me, women were pretty active in his ministry. If all they were doing was writing checks and supporting financially the ministry, okay, I'm not quite sure if all this was necessary, because he was getting a lot of supporters. 
this is not a, this is my supporters list. Uh, let me thank all my financial supporters. Okay, that's not it. He has way more supporters than this. Okay. But he's recognizing people that had a public role in ministry most likely. Like Priscilla and Aquila. You know what they did? They taught the apostle Apollos. When he started to connect with the apostles, they're the ones who brought Apollos his leadership training. Priscilla and Aquila. Now, you will notice in verse 7, everyone look. There is a person here named Junia. Greet Adronicus and Junia. Everyone say Adronicus and Junia. My kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, they were well known. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Now, what you do not see in the ESV is the traditional translation of the ESV, which is the natural translation of the Greek, which most of church history has exclusively known, exclusively known. NASV, NIV, New King James, King James, any of RSV, all of the Bible translations, they have exclusively known one natural translation. And let me read to you the natural translation. It says, the natural translation says, Greet Adronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles. Or another translation, who are excellent among the apostles, who are outstanding among the apostles. ESV is the only place where they change it. Now, I told you, there's a lot of, as much as they try to translate it literally, there's a lot of interpretation that goes in here. And with that, I disagree with the ESV. All right? The natural translation of that Greek is to translate it among the apostles or outstanding among the apostles. Not, what does the ESV have again? That are known to the apostles. Oh, why would Paul even write that? You know, like, greet Adronicus and, um, uh, greet Adronicus and Junia, uh, they are well known to the apostles. Uh, no, duh. <laughs> Paul, why are you writing that? that? What a kind of comment, you know? But if he says they are outstanding or they are among the apostles, that makes sense, because Maybe they had trouble going into different cities and doing their ministry because they weren't recognized as apostles. So the Apostle Paul says, hey, y'all need to recognize. These guys are legit. Now, uh, the ESV has changed the wording. But the NIV is not guiltless. Neither is the NASB. Okay, Because in the NIV and NASB, there is a conspiracy. Let me explain to you the conspiracy. In NIV and NASB, they translate the word junia as junius, which is a masculine form. To eliminate any idea that they are female apostles in the early church. This is the only example we have. So if you can get rid of this, you can get rid of the idea that they were ever female apostles. Now, the problem with Junius is 
In all of ancient literature, it is never mentioned as an example of a name once. Now you have to understand, Peter, John, James, these are very common names. All right, the Greeks weren't very creative with their names, like the African Americans are. All right, man, back then, Jews, Greeks, man, they just, they just, uh, let me just take a name, uh, pick a popular, Jamie. All right, Jamie. All right, Junia. All right, Junia. You know, it was like a popular name. All right, Junius is never mentioned in any ancient text. In fact, the early first century historian Josephus, he wrote about Junia. Okay. And he, and he wrote and he said that she was the wife of Adronicus and they were sent forth as apostles that were doing the work of God at that point in church history. Okay. So Josephus already recognizes there's no such thing as Junius. Early church fathers recognized Junia and she was considered a true apostle. Okay. This is very revolutionary, very highly controversial. Don't be, don't be going sharing this podcast with everybody. I will start taking some heat. All right. Now I welcome the heat. All right. But not from some like no name people that really don't know their Bible yet and don't know all the issues and they just want to start arguing with me. Okay. Now, why do I make this point of verse seven of Junia being a female apostle? Okay. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Oh, come on. Stay with me today. All right. I know I extended my time, but just stay with me right here. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. It's talking about Christ. Christ ascends on high, leads the host of captives, then he gives gifts to men. Now, we know about spiritual gifts. Word of knowledge, give the prophecy, give the working miracles, give the faith, give the tongues, give the interpretation of tongues, right? We know nine spiritual gifts that are listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But here, Apostle Paul is listing a different set of gifts. They are not in the form of supernatural manifestations. They are in the form of people. God gives supernatural manifestations as gifts, and God gives People to the body of Christ's gifts. Okay? And these are the gifts that he lists. Verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers, I mean the pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In the NIV, it says he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. Okay? But the text does not say he gave men to be Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, does it? I don't see that. Do you guys see it? Okay. So there is no gender mentioned here. Okay. So you can't necessitate that the fivefold ministry, by this text, you can't necessitate that it's restricted just men. Okay. Um, in Joel chapter 2, it says, I will pour out my spirit on my sons and daughters. They will prophesy. Even on my uh, servants, maidservants, you know, both male and female, he makes it very clear. I will pour out my spirit in those days. When you pour out, when God pours out a spirit on somebody, 
different effects happen. And for certain people, when you get the spirit of God that strong, you either break out in tongues or you break out in prophecy. And you prophesy. Okay? And uh, I don't find anywhere in scripture that tells me that the five-fold ministry, there is no scripture passage in the whole Bible that says that the five-fold ministry is to be prohibited from women. Okay? You can't find that. You can't tell me that. Here's something else. Nowhere in scripture does it say that the five-fold ministry ended with the first century church. You can't find it. You can't find it. Because it's an extra biblical argument. It's an argument made by fearful reformers during the time of the Reformation that hadn't known the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit yet. For ages they were in the dark. That's why it's called the Dark Ages. They didn't even have a copy of the Bible for centuries. Martin Luther comes, starts off, sparks off the Reformation. Calvin and Zwingli start to systematically teach it to all the people. They get translations of the Bible at the blood of Wycliffe. Wycliffe was the one who was killed, right? And people start grasping the word of God. And one of the big things about the Reformation was, it was a reaction against the Catholic Church. You have to understand this point. And in the Catholic Church, they teach that the popes that are in Rome is an active, perpetual succession of the apostleship that started in the Bible. Do you understand that? So for the reformers, they're like, no, you're not. You don't represent. You're not spirit-filled. You're, you're, you're full of corruption. All you want to do is build these huge uh, cathedrals and basilica all over Rome. That's all you want. You guys are hungry for money. You're not even giving us the gospel. You are no apostle. In fact, there are no apostles. And the way they rejected the Catholic Church, in my view, they overcompensated and got rid of apostleship altogether. Okay? And then, later on, what happens? After the Reformation, we get the gospel, we start getting strong church movements, denominations, they start splitting over baptism, splitting over the meaning of communion, you know, splitting over all these things, right? It's, they, you know, they start splitting. Anyway, a lot of that was political, by the way. If you study church history, there's a lot of politics, a lot of killing. What happens? Cults start to rise up. With, uh, with the rationalist option, when you start having philosophers teach different things, different philosophical paradigms, people start thinking for themselves. And one of the effects that all of the killing in Europe had on European Christians is it jaded them. That's how we got modernism. Modernism was birthed out of a jadedness over Christianity in Europe. Because all forms of Christianity in Europe ended up in murder and killing and war and politics and money and fame. And so people started saying, you know what, why can't we just be moral without a biblical view of God? Let's just be good to each other. Let's have good societies. Why must we have this biblical view that gets us into trouble and into disagreements over things like baptism? Why do we have to kill so many Mennonites over the issue of baptism? (laughs) 
It was also pacifism, by the way. Y'all didn't take up arms. That's your fault. I, I just disagree. I, I, I will take up arms in an instant for a righteous war. I know you will too. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you're a hockey player. Okay, I understand. <clears throat> anyway, what happened? A lot of cults started rising up. Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses. Okay, within these movements, one particular thing that they do is they claim apostleship. They were claim they're modern day prophets, modern day apostles. Therefore, we have the authority to abandon some of these traditional orthodox beliefs and teach you something that looks very new. And so what did the, what did the reformed people do? They rejected apostleship even more and said, what a dangerous thing. It results in, it results in Mormonism. I'm telling you right now, man, history makes it clear why these smart reformed people stand in the position that they do. And they argue viciously, accusing people of heresy, of believing in a modern fivefold ministry. But the problem is, scripture is not on their side. Because there is no scripture that says, two of the fivefold ministries have died out. They're picking and choosing here. I have not heard a good argument for this. Maybe I need to look into it more. I haven't heard a good argument. They say pastors are legit. So we have pastors. Teachers are legit. Sometimes they're recognized. Evangelists. Oh, Billy Graham kicked that door open. They said, all right, we got to recognize those Billy evangelists. But prophets and te- uh, apostles? Never! Never! Do you remember Catholicism? Do you remember uh, Charles T. Russell? Do you remember Mormonism? No way! There are no apostles and prophets for today. But the Bible teaches... The church is founded on apostles and prophets. Evangelicals will say, yeah, it was. It was founded, and now we've been continuing. Well, some history you have. If the apostles and prophets truly gave you a firm foundation, why couldn't you stand on that firm foundation? Why did you have ages in church history where you almost lost the gospel? Tell me that. What kind of foundation is that? Now, I believe we have a firm foundation in terms of what the apostles early on did and them giving us the scriptures. By the way, not all apostles wrote the scriptures. Now, there's a lot of apostles that didn't write anything in the Bible. It's not a qualification of an apostle. It's another misconception. But if it was a firm foundation, why did the church almost lose the gospel? That's my question. Here's my answer. Apostles and prophets are perpetual positions of office for today. They are leadership positions that are key to the church. And when you don't have it, when those seats are vacant, that's when you have churches that are not balanced, churches that are easily fall into false teaching, churches that become dead and dry, have all the right answers, but are dead and dry. That are afraid of the Holy Spirit. They're afraid of something as elementary as the gift of tongues. Why are there still so many American evangelicals that are still scared? American Baptists? American uh, uh, Baptists? <laughs> uh, Presbyterians? 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 Why are they still so afraid? Why? 
because the churches that they went to did not have an apostle and prophet serving there, and therefore they didn't get a balanced teaching. If you have a pastor simply leading your church, you're in trouble. Because the pastor's primary gift is to serve the people. You're going to have a lot of people-pleasing leaders in the church if all you have is a pastoral, is if a, if a five-fold ministry pastor. But I'll tell you right, when you have an apostle, and that person starts to set things in order, all right, you, people can be like, oh, you know, these are the felt needs of the church. The church needs to customize the ministry to the felt needs of the church. The apostle says, no! We must be faithful to the vision that God has given us. Oh, hallelujah. Sorry about that. I'm spitting spitting all over Chris. Apostles say, no, we got to be faithful to the vision. And the prophet says, yeah, we got to be faithful to the vision. And they push forward church plants. They push forward missions work. Even when it looks like financially it's unfavorable to do so. Why? Because apostles steward the vision and revelation of God. That is one of their primary gifting focuses. Not to please man, but it's to please God by stewarding the visions that have been revealed to him. Look at the life of Apostle Paul. We need Apostle Pauls for today. Not Apostle Pauls that are going to add to the scripture. I get that. That's not the issue. No one's trying to add to scripture today. So R.C. Sprout, get off of it. I love you. I benefited greatly from your teaching. But I will not go to you to receive an impartation. Because you are clueless when it comes to Holy Spirit giftings. You don't even believe they exist for today. When the, the whole rest of the world is increasing in Christianity, not because of your denomination, but because of Pentecostalism and charismatic movements. How are you denying the whole 80%, 90% of the body of Christ? Your churches have 200 people. Charismatic churches have 20,000, 200,000 people. Are you saying that they're missing it? They're all wrong? It's all, it's all ecstatic sensationalism? Get off of it. No one's trying to add to the Bible. What we, we are arguing is, what the Bible says is these gifts, these offices, they were never meant to go away. They are perpetual for today. The president of the United States of America, that office is perpetual. When the United States people filled it with George Washington, when George Washington stepped down and later on he died, they did not say we must leave this vacant because it was only meant for George Washington. They said, no, we got to fill it. Let's vote again. It's a perpetual office. If something that crucial is important to a nation, do you not think that office this crucial is important to the church? Okay, now I, I set that all up to say. <sighs> My message for today is real simple at the end. There are fivefold ministry ministers that are women. I'm not, I'm not arguing for this through exegesis. I already did that. I'm not arguing for this exclusively with this. I already gave you the exegesis. I'll give you my other evidence. Joyce Meyer, Beth Moore. Do you guys know who who they are? Give me a bit of Joyce Meyer clip real quick. You show that? Give me a Joyce Meyer clip. Joyce Meyer and Beth Moore, I would say, 
convincingly that they are teachers, fivefold ministry gifted teachers. All right, hurry up. Come on. Oh, man, what you showing me, man? What are you doing? What are you doing, John? Get it together. We make. Give me a little bit. We are in the darker times of our life. Is there anybody here who ever goes through anything? All right, check this out. How big do you think that crowd is? One of the decisions that okay. we have to make is to be determined. Tens of thousands of men and women. All kinds of decisions that we make. And I said this last night, but I want to say it again. What is that thing that's down on the inside of some people that they reach down and get hold of that causes them to succeed? While others, although they have the same opportunity, never seem to be able to take hold of that thing and they just quit and give up and murmur and complain and groan. And okay, that's good. That's good. All right, man. It's a, it's a good message. You listen to the rest of it later. <clears throat> uh, Joyce Meyer and Beth Moore, they're examples to me of teachers that are women. Okay, but let me go further. Uh, evangelists, famous evangelists. Amy Semple McPherson. Do you guys know the four square denomination? One of the largest Pentecostal denominations in the L.A. area. Brought amazing reform to Los Angeles area. Was led by a female evangelist. Okay. Catherine Coleman. Very famous female evangelist. Used to heal people out of wheelchairs every single week. Even when she was at our hotel. People were getting healed in the parking lot. People were getting healed in the hallways. All you had to do was book a room on the same floor as Catherine Coleman and you got your healing. <laughs> Incredible testimonies. And she didn't do this for a couple years. She did this for years. <laughs> Can I tell you right now? If you really want to know what gift a person is moving in, biblical exegesis alone won't get you there. You can't discern whether a person is moving as an apostle or prophet or evangelist by biblical exegesis alone or by just looking at their resume. It takes a discerning man and woman of God to really recognize what gift that person is moving in. And I don't know if you, in your minds I qualify as a discerning man of God, but in my discernment, brothers and sisters, I recognize Women. And they're doing an amazing job. They're blessing both men and women. So I'm telling you right now, straight up, within the family, I do believe that there are specific roles God gives to the husband and wife. But in the church of God, I believe that husband headship role is most powerfully signified by Christ and Christ alone. And whatever roles that are distributed out of that is an extension of Christ's authority. And I believe he gives it to both genders. Regardless of income, skin color, or gender. All right now. I'm going to close in prayer. Father, I just thank you, God. I thank you, Lord, that each and every person in here. I pray that you would awaken a zeal and a fire 
to search the word of God. But not only to search the word of God with all kinds of man-made hermeneutics and interpretation techniques, but they will search the word of God filled with the spirit of God, led by the discernment that comes from being filled with the spirit of God and rightly relating to God through Christ Jesus. I pray for clarity, God, in this room. I pray for conviction in this room. And I thank you that the things that you are establishing at this hour, they are the foundation on which this church will be propelled into a whole nother level. This will be a place, a safe place, where when women of God who have received a prophetic word or feel, who feel led, that in this house they will not be denied. In this house they will be celebrated. In this house, we will cover them through a process in which they can come to a place where they can exercise those gifts fully. And I just pray that God, they will all come forth. That no gift of God will be buried in this house. No gift of God will be buried in this house. But every one of those gifts used to multiply glory to your name, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right.